Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, coming to you from the isolation of our homes, Band-Aid food solutions, mushroom proteins, French food grades, and is it possible to cook rice to perfection? So, Joshna, there are changes afoot. Changes afoot. What is that? Tell us. Tell us all about it. What's happened? Exciting news. The next few months, Hot Plate is going to be welcoming a range of fantastic guest hosts from the food, drink, and hospitality space. I am These really excited. People this we know well. And love very much. And it's going to be a real delight uh, to chat with these folks. Yeah, so they're going to be swinging in because I'm going to be on leave. And each host is going to bring their unique experience and perspective to the conversation. And we're going to just keep doing what we do. I love it. Trends and discoveries, controversies, tastes and tactics of the beverage world. And our first guest host for September is... Susan Boyle. Awesome. The wonderful Susan Boyle, who we are both... Uh, good friends with. Uh, she is the best. She will be joining us uh, live from her home in Ireland. So Susan is a drinks consultant, researcher, and performer based in Ireland. She's an award-winning member of the British Guild of Beer Writers. She writes about beer, wine, and spirits and presents drinks on Irish TV and radio, and also at industry and consumer tasting events and festivals. She has worked with the British Museum to brew a beer supported by ancient Egyptian archaeological evidence, and mm-hmm. next year, and this is so cool. We'll take up a research position as Fulbright Fellow at the Smithsonian Museum of American History. That's a mouthful. Isn't that the most exciting bit? That is so cool. Uh, I, I think what a cool posting and what an awesome person to be in that, spa- in that space. For sure. So her proposed research project will look at the influence of European immigrants on brewing in pre-prohibition America. Susan is currently a PhD candidate at the Technological University of Dublin, her research focuses on how and why environment and storytelling influence what people choose to drink. Uh, and she's funny and hilarious. And I think that our audience is going to love listening to her. Yeah. And she'll be the first of many. So she'll be our guest host for September and then we'll have someone new every month. Right on. Joshna, a headline caught my eye recently mm-hmm. and I thought of you right away. The headline was stop trying to eliminate hunger with food waste. Right. And this piece was around, uh, it was centered around a bill that was pr- proposed in Parliament a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, That's and right. it's being reintroduced now. And the idea is to, one, make October 16th National Food Waste Day, and two, to develop a national strategy to reduce food waste. And as I was reading it, I felt like this could almost have been written by you. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, listen, you're right on the money because uh, the person who wrote it was actually my boss at the stop uh, for five years. What? Uh, yes. Nick Saul was my boss. <laughs> okay. He now uh, is at the helm of Community Food Centers Canada, and which was really central focus around these issues. So you dipped into the well of the same values. Um, and I completely uh, am on board with this thinking, right? Essentially, what Nick is saying in this piece is that um, just... Uh, the, the sort of charity model that we have where we, where we think about donating or giving food that would otherwise go to waste to hungry people is a sort of tidy solution uh, to issues around food waste that we see. What he's saying is that that is not the truth and that the real issue around hunger and, and the real 
solution around addressing hunger is just making sure that people have enough money to buy themselves good food. Yeah, for right? sure. It's as simple as that. And it's interesting because, of course, as a first instinct, you see all this food waste. And what a lovely thought, you know, oh, this is going to waste. Let's repurpose mm-hmm. it and give it to people who need it. It just, it makes sense, right? It does. It does. But then if you do take a step back, and I think he did a great job of outlining this, is this really is a, a Band-Aid solution. And it's really just making the corporations feel better, maybe even giving them some tax breaks for, yes. for doing it. And it falls into this Band-Aid solution. It reminded me. When, uh, whenever I get junk mail from a company, I'll Mm -hmm. phone them and say, please take me off your mailing list. Right. And nine times out of 10, the person's answer will be, well, just recycle it. Just throw it in the recycling bin. Yes, yes, yes. And the thing is, if I throw it in the recycling bin, it didn't not happen. It doesn't cancel out the original issue, which is that you're producing too much paper. That's exactly it. It was interesting for me to be able to take that step back because I would have normally just thought these were great initiatives, but mm-hmm. he pointed out the the real issues there. Uh, the, the the and you know the one piece that I think that I would have liked him to drill down on a little bit more is the dignity piece, right? Yes. Is this idea that yes. that our solution to this is just to give the waste food to hungry people? Uh, no. I don't think so, right? It's uh, the the truth on this one to me is really clear, and that is the best way to eliminate food waste is to not produce it in the first place. Yeah, he touched he touched on that, but you're you're right. It's a really important thing to consider because these are people who are struggling to make ends meet, and you know why are we yeah they don't deserve not because they're struggling to make ends meet doesn't not make them deserve food waste. This is exactly eat. it, right? And if, if the, we understand yeah. ba- on a more general sense that access to good quality food is a basic human right, then p- nobody should be dependent on waste uh, to actually nourish them. That's not like that is not a sustainable, uh, dignified human rights in, you know, supporting <laughs> approach to any of this. You're right. Okay. There was another piece. Mm hmm that really jumped out at me and me. made me think, and I really want to share it with our listeners. Cause I was honestly really surprised. Yeah. Cause when I think of food waste, my mind automatically goes to, you know, dumpsters behind grocery stores, right, you know, restaurants right. that throw away all the uneaten food at the end of the day. And he broke down where the waste actually happens. Mm-hmm. And 34% of food waste happens before the food even gets to the store or the yes. restaurant. That's right. 34% has been wasted. And then I was horrified to learn 47% of it happens in the home. Yes. 47%. Yes. Yes. So only 19% is groceries and restaurants where we're all very happy to point fingers that's and exactly say that's it. where the issue is. But how is it that almost 50% of food that is wasted is wasted in the, I don't even, I'm having trouble computing that. I don't understand so, how this is yeah, happening. I can help out there a little bit. Part of what's, um, he, Nick did mention uh, some of the agricultural policies and the subsidies that exist yeah. that, that already undercut what a farmer can take to market. Yes. Right. So that's where that whole chunk, uh, right. And he talked about how, uh, because farmers know that there's, there's a top end to how much or the price they can get for when, regardless of what the actual harvest is, much of it just gets tilled under. 
mm. right? Because it's just not going to work with the with the economic framework that has been imposed on agricultural production. Yeah. Uh, but then on the other side of it, when you think about original production to final end user consumption, right? I mm. did some digging about this when I was doing uh, a workshop for some folks and found out that the average Canadian, and this is a person, not a household, right? 140 yes. kilograms of food is wasted a year by one person. Right? And on and the other end are people who can't even get food. This is it. This is the madness of all of this, right? This is uh, the weekly clean out and pulling slimy things out of the, your crisper, right? Or fuzzy moldy things. The fact that that is allowed to happen all the time and that, that our regular practice around meal preparation involves this ritual around throwing moldy food, you know, throwing rotten food or, or the other side where it's like there's one little bit of mold and someone thinks that the entire piece has to go. Right. right. The idea of not sort of, you know, trimming things around or shaving stuff off and keep, you know, and continuing to use the food. Um, and, and for a long time, Morella, I thought that the real solution to this would be transparent fridge doors. <laughs> right? I was I like, like that. Ah, maybe what we need is because you just, you don't know what's in there. Right. Yeah. You don't know and you can't see what's happening. So you don't know how to prioritize uh, what you, you know, what you need to deal with. Um, but I when you see sort of broader movements campaigning and talking about corporate food waste and this and that, the when you see that the truth is that some of the largest food waste is being generated in everybody's home with food that they potentially have purchased and then not eaten. Uh, that to me, I, I, I like the idea of telling people to focus there. Uh, right. And, and not, we don't need to like, we'll, we'll deal with the corporate, you know, we'll deal with that production issue. But as you said, at the grocery store level, that's actually the smallest uh, contribution of food waste in the entire chain of things. I was, yeah, I'm still, my brain is trying to compute. And I understand that there are way more households than there are restaurants. So mm -hmm. probably on a, you know, each household isn't necessarily wasting that much, but it all really to see it add up in this way yes. was a real wake up call for me. And I don't know, does, do you think this also counts like peels and stuff like this, or is this is actual wasted? Food? Oh, I think, I think that, I think peels are included in this. Okay. Right. Um, because and, I, I don't know that we'll able to, we'll, we'll be able to, to, just, to differentiate and separate that. And, I th and I think coffee grinds, you know, and all that kind of stuff is in there too. Okay. And, you know, of course there's work that can be done in those areas, mm -hmm. right? And we've talked earlier about like people who don't eat the stem from, who think you can't eat the stem on broccoli, the broccoli and, and, yeah. uh, and different, you know, different initiatives. Um, but yeah, I am just baffled by this number and I, I wanted to share it because it's certainly going to make me think twice about all my decisions. Yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I think to me, this really screams of our, we don't, about the fact that we don't value food enough, right? It either, for some of us, it comes too easily and we don't think about it. We don't think about what it took to actually get this thing to us. Um, and we just, we don't respect it enough. I really honestly believe that we don't. And, respect and again, I, I love the Greenman program, mm -hmm. uh, for those who aren't in, is Greenman Toronto specific? Uh, I think it might yeah, be. So for those who, those of our listeners who aren't in Toronto, we have a, a recycling program that involves a, we have, we have garbage, then we have recycling, and then we have the green bin where we put our food 
scraps and they're collected by yeah. the city. And I, I do think it's a great initiative, but I also part of me wonders if it helps promote that mentality that I had earlier of like, oh, well, it's not, at least I'm not throwing it out. So yes. it's okay. I know and, somehow we think that there's yeah. a virtuousness to the organic spin and well, that it's, you know, which, what's which gonna... there is, but it doesn't preclude trying to minimize your waste. This is exactly it, right? Because this is an overproduction problem. Joshna, I learned about something new this week. Well, new to me. Had you heard of mycoproteins before? I had not. This was new to me as well. And here's the interesting thing. They've been a, an idea since the 60s when uh, a British man by the name of Joseph Arthur Rank, also known as Lord Rank, because <laughs> he was a baron. Of course he was. Uh, and it's interesting to me that he's gotten all the credit for this because as far as I can tell, he just asked people to research this. Right. He didn't But somehow actually, he gets yeah. all the, yeah. But the, I guess if you're a lord or a baron, that's how. Yeah. You ask work. the right questions, you get the credit. Yeah. Yeah. And so these microproteins were approved for, this happened in the UK, for food safety in 83. And they were launched under the brand name Quorn in 1985. Mm. So at first I was a little confused as to why I've never heard of this. Right. And then I dug a little deeper and found out that, uh, of course, it's new to us because mycoproteins are only available in Canada as of January this year. Oh, wow. Okay. There it is. It just oh. didn't exist here. Um, they didn't bother to, uh, apparently there were a number of, uh, if you're a, a meat substitute, there mm -hmm. are a number of different uh, forms and Fair regulations and various things okay. that you have to uh, comply with to be allowed into Canada. And they just, uh, I guess, took their time because it was probably selling well in Europe and US and elsewhere. So um, anyway, so uh, enough with the suspense. These are, this is a, mycoproteins are meat alternative. Mm -hmm. And essentially, it's just a fermented fungus. It's a, it's a mushroom. It's a mushroom. Called uh, Fusarium venenatum. It's pretty cool because you just put them in these fermenters and their mass doubles every five hours. So it Come grows on. super fast and you're just encouraging a mushroom to grow. And then this mushroom seems like a, a pretty great option. By the time they've uh, completed the process and dried it out, it has sort of a mince meat texture. Uh, it's higher in protein and fiber and lower in fat than tofu. And it's been show, it seems that it lowers cholesterol levels, help control blood sugar and insulin. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are some slight concerns. Some people seem to develop an allergic reaction uh, to them. But right. um, from the various studies I've, I've read, it doesn't really seem to be a huge concern. And I mean, people develop allergies to all kinds of different yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Um, I have to tell you that I am really into this. Right? right, much more than I ever was into Beyond Meat. Right, and and my big part of my big aversion to Beyond Meat is how processed a thing it is. Yeah, right? the list of ingredients in that burger patty is way too much. It's way too many different things. Um, and I know, just even like I remember doing some volunteer development work when I was living in India for a while that um, a mushroom log or growing mushrooms is a very viable, like, grassroots enterprise. 
Yeah. Right. They're very sustainable. It's a very sustainable way to do this. They regenerate quickly enough that it's, it makes sense to take these things to market and actually, you know what I mean? And to sell them and make some solid money. Um, but then from a culinary perspective, uh, mushrooms already have that umami flavor. Mm. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, it already has. And they have, especially when you think about a portobello, it already has a sort of meaty texture. Mm-hmm. Right. So much so that my my a lot of my vegetarian family. Right. And this is Indian specifically. Don't eat mushrooms because they are so meaty. Really? Yes. Very many will not eat mushrooms uh, because they, they simulate the experience of meat so much. And so for hardcore, it really makes yeah, sense to you. It makes perfect sense from a flavor perspective and from a texture perspective. It makes perfect sense. Never mind the fact that they can be grown anywhere really sustainably. Um, that and just quickly and quickly. Exactly. I am I think, very yeah, interested. It's a, it's a few days from start to finish to make yeah. a huge batch. And my understanding is once it's done, they just remove some of the liquid. And I think they add a little bit of egg white just to help hold it together things together yeah and then that's it that's all it is is this very protein and fiber rich fungus and i will say even the photo in the article that you shared looks much more appetizing of the raw Mm. patty the uncooked patty um than any other version of this thing that i you know any other sort of meatless meat that i have seen we don't need the tricks of the beet juice for the bloody running juices and you know what I mean? And all yeah. of that nonsense, just, and just give me a thing. And I, I already am confident that this thing is going to taste great. I'm, I'm very curious to try it. And I was also intrigued to find out that there's uh, in Japan, there's also a technique used to make uh, Koji based protein. So oh. it seems like this is, becoming more of an explored area and i agree with you so much more sustainable and so much less let's let's face it creepy Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know things like beyond meat that are just reconstituted 50 different ingredients to get things just right um so i am uh, hopeful that i'll come across it in a grocery store at some time soon because at the end of the day the true test is what is going to be in the mouth for sure Joshna, I came across this article about junk food advertising in France. Yes, yes. And my understanding is the current thinking is that limiting junk food advertising to youth is really, you know, a great place to start to promote healthy eating because mm-hmm. um, young people who uh, develop poor eating habits will then, you know, develop uh, poor, continue to have yes, poor eating habits as adults, yep. uh, as adults and, you know, can have various related uh, health issues. And it, it is a little bit surprising of all places that France uh, has a I huge was issue with this. quite shocked, actually. I, uh, I mean, on one hand, I suppose the, the dismal reality of the industrial food system is that there's no corner of this earth that it has not, you know, seeped into. But at the same time, uh, I really started thinking about the, like, the caught, like the juxtaposition of this the romance of the French diet, when we talk about hunks of crusty bread and a beautiful bit of cheese. In fact, a good friend of mine was in the south of France a couple of summers ago, and she noted that like street level homeless folks were still eating 
um, nice hunk, you know, crusty hunk of bread and a bit of cheese. A nice and, you know, yeah. Right. I love that way. Like that was, that was people, that was like people street level folks food. Right. So to think about the fact that there is such a force of, of advertising and targeting of young people uh, with this really empty, unnourishing food, it's very, I'm very, very surprised, right. About how, how the French ethos let this one slip by. Yeah, it's yeah. So, according to the article, many other countries have laws in place that prevent right. uh, advertising junk foods in time slots where they know that. Uh, and we're talking about you know four year olds. We're talking yes, up, like yes, yes, small yes. children, cartoon watching kids. And, yes. Uh, in two thousand eighteen, a similar regulation was proposed in France, and it was shot down. Uh, and instead, and this is. I find this super entertaining and I wish I could see some of these ads. Uh, France decided that these people, if they wanted to advertise junk food, had to add like a little warning, you know, yes. a la U.S. medication, uh, you know. Those, the those FDA ads. warnings yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, may cause so, explosive whatever. Yes. So can you imagine, you know, watching a, a huge ad for McDonald's, for example, and then at the end they're like, avoid snacking. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's not going to be effective. Uh, the other, the other so message funny is even less effective. Avoid eating too much salt, sugar, or fat. Right. Like what's that going to mean to a four-year-old? Yeah. Uh, take regular exercise or eat at least five portions of fruit and vegetables every day. Uh, I don't think, yeah. It, you know what that reminds me a lot of? I was in India last summer and I went to the movies. And mm -hmm. one of the things I noted that was so fascinating, I'm guessing part of their national health um, objectives is anytime anybody's smoking, on screen, there's yeah. a little thing that comes up in the corner to let you know that smoking kills and that they don't endorse it, right? And it's in English and in yeah. Hindi, and it's hilarious. Anytime anybody is smoking, flicking a cigarette, anything, uh, this this is just like, hey, 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 we don't endorse this. This just makes the movie awesome. So we're going to keep, yeah. you know. Yeah, and it makes that person look really cool. Yeah, and exactly. That's their cool. But, you know, it's, how about just not showing it? Uh, it, it I know. Which it's is, so funny. And look, things are I, leaning that way, though. I think, I think so too. Yeah, uh, I really think so too. Um, when I for when I read this piece first, um, I really I continue to be so irritated that we are having such a narrow conversation about stuff like this, right? And mm -hmm. where where I'm headed with this is the idea that that I'm, I really push back on the notion that all calories are created, equal, okay. right? And 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 the thing that is not being discussed here is that it's not just that this food is full of salt, fat, and sugar. It's too easy to just to just sit in vilifying salt, fat, and sugar and not really thinking about what the broader picture is. It's that this food is empty, right? There's, right. Not, there's no nourishment in this food. And that is the bigger issue to me. That is the, that is the thing that, I, that is actually having really detrimental impact on people's health, right? It's, we, it's easy to be like, it's too much salt, it's too much fat, too much sugar. But it's also the absence of any other real nourishment. That is the problem, right? And we're not talking about that. And that drives me crazy. It is so interesting that you would say that because I went on a little bit of a... Uh, I a Marilla a rabbit bit, hole. Amazing. Oh, yes. Um, because one of the statistics in this article was that 48% of the foods advertised to these four-year-olds and up had a nutritional ranking of D and E. Yes. And I started thinking, wait, what's this nutritional ranking system? Right. So I looked it up. It's a European system, so it's not France specific. Okay. And it uh, 
ranks foods from A to E. And as you point out, it is a bit dated in its notions. So Mm -hmm. negative points are received for anything that has uh, saturated fats, sugars, sodium. Right. Um, But there are positive points for, you know, fruits, vegetables, fibers, and proteins. Uh, And if anyone just wants to have a little fun, there's a, there's an app you can download. It's called NutriScore. And I looked up all kinds of foods on it. And uh, if it's not already on there, you can enter the nutritional information and it will tell you the score. Oh, cool. Um, So so I did a little snooping around and yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a little, it's a little bit problematic, the system. I mean, it's better than no system, Mm -hmm. Um, but from what I can see, A to C is good. Um, So A would probably just be like a piece of fruit. Right. And when you, you're getting to see, you're getting something like, uh, you know, applesauce that has been sweetened. Okay. Right. Okay. Uh, that being said, cottage cheese, which I consider to be something super healthy, mm-hmm. uh, was a B. And only the light cottage cheese was oh, an A. See where I'm going with this? I totally. Yeah. Right? This, this dialing up of virtue in this very prescribed way is not. Yeah. No. So, no, you no, know. No, yeah. Things like chips were a D because chips, I guess, still have, you know, Too much pota- pot- fat, potatoes, yes. but they still have potatoes in them. So they, they're not sure. like completely empty. Yes. And yes. Something, something like Coke that's has like right, that is nothing, negative, in it nothing. Yes. Was an E, but here, here was where I really understood there's a problem with the system. Diet Coke is a B. Oh, there's the truth. That is what? the truth. There On what it is, planet right? is a Diet Coke as healthy as cottage cheese? Is. That is perfect. Please. I'm going to use that. I'm going <laughs> to use that. Thank you. That's so helpful. Yeah. That is so, so helpful. That's exactly again, the picture. Yeah? yeah. Right. So it's interesting to me that you sniffed this. That you could, you could yeah. tell right away. You're like, hmm, something's rotten here. Uh, and I this dug and I yet. ended up in the exact same conclusion. This being said, for the purposes of this study in France, all the, you know, the foods advertised by these uh, seven major advertisers who include like McDonald's and Leslie Ferrero, Coca-Cola, that kind of thing. And who make up a third of the advertising in these time slots for these children. One third. All those those foods are, yeah. yeah. All those foods are D's and E's. So unequivocally not good. They, yeah. they weren't in any kind of great. They were like, oh, no, it's a B because it's, it's diet coke. No, um, these are all very, very bad foods. So um, I think as a result of this study, France is reexamining, and I think it would be wise to. I would think so, too. I feel like they, they have a reputation to uphold at the very least. How are kids who are eating like this going to still get excited about a stinky hunk of cheese, you know, a crusty yeah. bit of loaf of bread and, uh, and a stinky hunk of cheese? That's a lot of distance to cover, right? Joshua, do you eat a lot of rice? I do eat a lot of rice. Uh, definitely. Uh, being um, brown girl, Indian family, rice played very, very heavily. Um, and in my attempt to not eat quite as much wheat, uh, I definitely lean in the direction of rice. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm not a very big rice eater. Okay. I do. I do enjoy it. But um, this article annoyed me a little bit. Yes. <laughs> so I yes, wanted to bring I'm it up. with you. Yes. Tell me, what, tell me what your thoughts might be. So the, it was reporting on a study that was done at uh, Deakin University. Deakin University Center for Advanced Sensory Science. <laughs> right. And they were trying to establish 
um, the correct water quantity to use to cook the perfect rice, and that they were trying to figure out, you know, what makes a rice fantastic. And they came to, to two conclusions. The first one is that it's texture, not flavor, that makes a good mm -hmm, rice. Mm -hmm. I'll just leave that there. Sure. Uh, and, and then the other thing that they determined is that through trials, they determined some people prefer sticky rice and some people prefer fluffy rice. Right. I'll, I'll just let you share your, your thoughts mm. before I do. Okay. <laughs> I'm guessing they'll be similar. To so mine. I've got, first of all, when I first read this, I was yeah. just like, I thought it was a really dismissible notion to want to find the one perfect way to cook rice. Right. It's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, for sure. My attitude about that is steeped in my own Asian background, right? Mm -hmm. Asia does a fine, fine job of uh, both producing and consuming rice. Um, but even just, even just if we don't have to think about various different food cultures, even in the Indian tradition, there are so many different ways to cook your rice, depending on how you like to eat the rice, like physically how you like to get it from the plate to your mouth, right? And there's so many different ways to cook rice, depending on what's going on top of it. Right. Right? Because that fluffy separated grains business does a 100% terrible job of holding any gravy. Okay. Right? Right? And so the reason that we have a bit of stickiness in the rice is that it can hold the gravy without completely falling apart. I just made this connection. I have to share with you because it's yeah. super exciting to me. Please. Because uh, I come from, uh, I, w I grew up on Italian food. Yes. And the we eat pasta primarily. Mm -hmm. And the way we choose the shape of the pasta is based on Yes. What, what's going on it? Yes, of course. What the I've just the clicked yes. with you is, of course, rice is rice is rice. So the way that that's dealt with is through the cooking technique. Yes. You adapt the rice to the dish. Would that be a fair analogy? hundred percent. That is so cool. Right. One hundred percent. Because if it's if it's um, uh, a dal or, 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 or wet things, you want a bit of a stickier rice, mm -hmm. right? And it holds all together. Whereas when we have a drier curry. Um, I wanted, I want some drier rice, right? Because right. it, and otherwise it, it just doesn't quite fit. Uh, the other piece that I think is super important is like, um, and, and even I'm just thinking about, uh, Ugali, Ugali, I believe this is Kenyan or Ghanaian. It's an African dish. And essentially you take a bit of cooked rice in your hand and mm -hmm. as the eater, and you do this, it's incredible. You do this for every mouthful, you kind of mush together a little bit of the rice and then you put a thumb imprint in it. And mm -hmm. that is the scoop that you use to pick up your greens or lentils or whatever the rest of the food is. Right. Yeah. So the rice is this little hand cup, right. That does this. But then on the other side of this argument is chopsticks. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you ever, like the, uh, there's no scenario more futile than attempting to eat a bowl of separated grained rice, with rice. A, right a fluffy rice with a pair of chopsticks right the sticky yeah. chunks in the rice is what enables you to kind of get a get a, a mouthful in your chopsticks that still holds up to the sauce that you know the gravy of whatever's on top of it um so it's it's way rice is so much more nuanced than this article lets you believe so you've taken it to the next level right because <laughs> i was thinking just even on a basic level right 
if I'm eating risotto, mm. I want it to be sticky. Of course you do. If I'm having jasmine rice, I want it to be fluffy. Right. Right? The different types of I mean, you went even yeah. more granular, but just yeah. on a basic level, different types of rice are cooked differently. For a reason. Uh, right? And to, to different texture. I've learned now from you that even the same rice can be cooked to many different Definitely. Uh, consistencies, depending on what's needed. And then the other thing is this idea that flavor doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, uh, no all thanks. these different rices have completely different flavors. And depending yes. on the, the context and what you're, you're in the mood for, I just felt, I mean, I understand the spirit of the article, you know, and they were using jasmine rice specifically for this experiment. And I think it was really about, again, shocker, packaged foods, right? Right. How can we make the most appealing rice in a, in a packaged food? But I felt that the way it was presented was really tone deaf. A hundred percent. Like you can't, you can't say these things because really, uh, what's the word? Not, not celebrating what rice can be. You know, totally. It's a very tunneled idea of what rice consumption actually is, and leaving out perhaps the biggest chunk of the planet who eats it in this very different way. Yeah, Uh, Uh, and more sophisticated way. I might. I I would agree. Right. My my grandmother used to get really serious about the basmati rice, which is the rice that, you know, the, yeah, the most very common Indian rice, mm-hmm. you shouldn't ever cook that sticky, right? The whole right. point of well-cooked basmati was that you could see the individual grains of rice. Yeah, right? whereas uh, risotto is on the opposite end of the scale. Yes, and we want to coax, right? We spend the 17 minutes standing at the stove to coax yeah. all that starch out of the rice so that that oh, all right. blends together, right? Uh, endless stirring, yeah. The 17 minutes, yeah. Uh, anyway so thanks friends interesting an incomplete story yes if you're enjoying our podcast please support us at patreon.com slash hot plate pod hot plate is part of the frequency podcast network please consider leaving us a rating or review it helps others find us you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hot Plate Pod. Follow me at Beerology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Original music by Dave Bell. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Thanks for listening.